City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the Theatre. This seminar, play script, director. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. And once again, these seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York City. These seminars offer a very rare opportunity to hear discussions of the realities of working in the theatre from an extraordinary list of performers, playwrights, directors, designers, casting directors, press agents, unions and guild leaders. And since the Wing first introduced these seminars 25 years ago, nearly 1,000 of Broadway and off-Broadway's very best have been our seminar guests to share their knowledge with us. The Wing is founder of the Tony Awards and perhaps best known for it, and we are justly proud of it. However, year-round, we work in the community for the theater and our distinguished achievements that I am very proud of, of the way that we service the community through the theater. Many of you know how much we do during the year, but many of you do not, so I'm going to go on with it and tell you what it is that we do year-round, not only to make the theater so important to the community, but also to give the Tony Awards a live active role beyond the Tony Awards in June. We honor excellence in the theater for the awards, but we also honor service. And we try to promote and to educate a discriminating audience. To do this, we have created audience development programs for students. And Introduction to Broadway is one of our programs that began seven years ago and has enabled over 70,000 New York City high school students to come to the theater. Many of them to come to see a Broadway and off-Broadway show for the very first time. Many of them on Broadway for the very first time. Then there's our newest program, Theater in Schools. Here, theater professionals like those you see today on the panel will meet and with the students. They go directly into the classrooms. They work with and talk to the students about working in the theater. What is ahead for them as they enter the world of theater? And of course, here is the Wing's legendary hospital program, which dates back to World War II and the stage door canteen. And through it, performers from Broadway, off-Broadway, and the cabaret world have entertained more than 75,000 patients in nursing homes, veterans' hospitals, children's wards, and AIDS centers. All of these in the New York area and bringing the magic of theater to those who cannot get to the theater itself. We're proud of our history and the work we do 
And we are happy to have a wonderfully working relationship with the theatrical community. We are grateful to everyone that makes what the American the Wing does possible. And so having said all of that, I hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's seminar. And this seminar is on the playwright director. And I'd like to introduce to you from my left, Lonnie Price, Michael Mayer, and then across I'm going to skip our moderators, go into Moses Kaufman, Warren Light, Jeff Barron, and I've skipped Matthew Washes. <laughs> there he is. And now I'd like to introduce our moderators, Wendy Wasserstein, playwright. That's all I can say here. <laughs> Wendy. Thank you. And with Wendy is Thomas Scott, who is director of marketing and special events for Lincoln Center Theater. Thomas. They, I hope, will tell you how simple it is to write for the theater. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Um, before we start, I thought we should just give a brief bio about everyone on this panel. Uh, Jeff Barron left a successful corporate career to be a writer. Uh, since that time, he's written um, a couple of operas, a libretto for an opera called Escape, and a comic opera, Song of Martina. His film, The Bruce Diet, uh, won the Golden Eagle Award and has been featured at film festivals around the world. For television, he's written for The Tracy Ullman Show and one of my favorites, A Year in the Life. And um, he has a new play, Visiting Mr. Green, his first play, currently off-Broadway, Jeff Barron. <laughs> to his right is Warren Light, whose current play is Sideman, um, which just finished a limited engagement off-Broadway and is about to uh, resume at another theater, the Roundabout Theater on Broadway. Um, his other credits include The Loop, which featured a, a pre-Ally McBeal, Calista Flockhart, uh, his, uh, another new play, Stray Cats, coming to Off-Broadway in May. Um, he wrote the book to the musical Mayor, which received a Drama Desk nomination, book and lyrics to the High-Heeled Women Cabaret Act, which won the Attic Critics Circle Award, and had many one-acts performed around town at the Atlantic Theater, Naked Angel, Circle Rep, and La Mama. Welcome, Warren Light. <laughs> to his right is Moises Kaufman, who is the writer and director of Gross Indecency, Three Trials of Oscar Wilde. He's also the founder and artistic director of Tectonic Theatre Project, which I'm sure we'll hear more about. And he's directed a number of plays for them, um, as well as plays elsewhere. He um, <coughs> teaches also, teaches directing at the 42nd Street Collective and is the winner of last year's Joe A. Calloway Award for Excellence in the Craft of Direction, given by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation. Moises Kaufman. I have to say more than playwright, Winnie Watson. <laughs> I mean, I realize you're a co-moderator here, but... Cabaret star? Cabaret star. <laughs> <laughs> and, her, and her new movie is wonderful, The Object of My Affection. Um, to my right, Matthew Warchus, who is the director of art, and soon to come to New York, a uh, new production of Hamlet, uh, which will be uh, at BAM, uh, which you originally did for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, Gosh, you've had so many credits, including uh, things at the National Theatre of the RSC, uh, the Dunmar Warehouse in London, many Shakespeare credits, um, also opera, 
uh, Falstaff, Troilus and Cressida, and you have an opera coming up, Cosi Fantuti, I'm told, and has just finished directing um, the new play by the writer of art uh, called The Unexpected Man, which hopefully will be coming to New York very soon. Matthew Warches. And to his right is Michael Mayer, who has done sort of the trifecta in theater this year. He's done a new play, a new musical, and a revival all in one season, um, starting with Triumph of Love, which started off the season, and then A View from the Bridge, which moved from the roundabout and is now playing uh, at uh, Broadway Theater, and, uh, and of course, Sideman, which is uh, Warren's play. Um, many directing credits, uh, including the national tour of... Um, uh, Angels in America, um, and um, uh, Baby Anger at Player's Horizons, Michael Mayer. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, my buddy Lonnie Price, who I had the pleasure of working with on Annie Get Your Gun this year. Um, in addition to being artistic director of musical theater works, um, Lonnie is directing Visiting Mr. Green, which is Jeff's play and has many uh, directing credits as well, uh, Manhattan Theatre Club, Encores, Revivals of the Rothschilds and Juno, and had a long career as an actor on Broadway. You may have seen him in Master Harold and the Boys, Merrily Rule Along, Burn This, and Falsetto Land. Lonnie Price. <laughs> wow. You want to ask your first question? Sure. I just wanted to say that it's very exciting to be sitting here amid such really great talent and just energy and enthusiasm in the theater. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> but I'm going to ask the first question to Lonnie. And I also hope by the end of this morning, someone explains to me why so many directors wear black and blue. <laughs> but Lonnie, you were actually one of my favorite musical comedy performers. And I'm very interested in how you made the tr transition from performing to directing. Uh, well, um, someone gave me a job, <laughs> essentially. Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was directing at um, the American Jewish Theater. I, I, I had done a, a, a play there, The Immigrant, mm -hmm. and uh, the artistic director, Stanley Breckner, had this musical coming up and asked me for some suggestions of directors, and uh, I gave him a bunch of them, and he said, well, what about you? And I had truly never thought about it, though... Uh, people who had been in shows with me had told me I had been directing for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't aware of, so they said it was no big stretch. Uh, Did the directors tell you this? No, no, I was good about that. I, I was able to make it look like their idea, okay. which I'm still, um, I think they're grateful for it. Um, so I, I, I got this job, and, uh, and I, was, I was just about to go on the road, actually, to play Jimmy Durante in a musical of Durante. So I had this window, and... Um, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going on the road for a year. So, I mean, if it's terrible, you know, I'll be away when it's, everyone's telling me how terrible it was. Mm -hmm. um, and it was fine. It was actually, a, it was an old George Abbott show called The Education of Hyman Kaplan. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it ran and extended. And the next year, when I came back from Durante, um, he said, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, uh, The Rothschilds was a show that I'd always admired and uh, was in as a kid and thought was needed to be, it was very huge, it had like 40 in the cast, mm -hmm. and, and I thought that the story of it was very remote, and I thought, well, what if we did that as sort of an environmental piece? And he said, fine, and so we took the 40 cast Rothschilds and put it on 12 people and had them changing clothes like mad, and uh, it was a success and moved and ran a year, and then I became a director. I, I, it was a great and easy transition, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, it wasn't, I didn't have to bang on doors and run around a lot. And I think also, being an actor that people had seen, they trusted me in some way because they had said, oh, well, 
you know, he probably knows something about this. Do you miss performing? Is it oh, Wendy. Uh, <laughs> what a question. Um, uh, on and off. When I see something good, mm -hmm. I miss performing. Um, uh, when, I, when I see these gentlemen's work, I miss performing. But, but then I think of the Wednesday matinee, and then I think, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay that I don't do it anymore. Uh, but I, I hope to do it again sometime. I just don't know when, when the, when the right situation happens. The, the other thing, too, is, is that as a performer, I was the victim of a lot of directors who didn't know very, didn't, were not very good. And so I kept being a good thing in something that was unrealized or bad. And I had you know, three sort of huge musicals built around me that closed on the road. And finally, I just didn't feel as though I could put myself in that position again mm -hmm. without having some more artistic control over the final product because it was just, it was heart, acting is heartbreaking. It's, it's just a very painful thing, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, I'm happier in this end at the moment. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, Michael, you also had similar transition, right? From yeah. Active directing. He got all the parts that I was up for. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're kidding. I got out of acting school. Yeah, everyone. Really? Um, everyone. <laughs> well, many of them. Um, I didn't have the, the success um, that, that Lonnie had. Um, You're making up for it now, Michael. Well, <laughs> perhaps, but I still resent it. <laughs> <laughs> Why Can I switch my seat? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to switch your hands on. <laughs> um, no, I did. Um, I, I tried really hard to, to do the kind of work that Lonnie was doing, you know, the Broadway musicals, which were always really dear to my heart. Um, I had the great good fortune, though, of studying acting at NYU. Um, Olympia Dukakis was my acting teacher, and Tony Kushner was one of the directing students, and we formed a, a very close relationship. And eventually, we had our own small theater company off-Broadway. We did a lot of political theater. And that's sort of what I had uh, really devoted myself to in the early years out of school. Uh, he went on to start writing some fairly important works. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I tried for a while to do the, um, you know, the audition thing. And I had a very lovely agent who submitted me for a lot of stuff. And I got really close to a lot of things and never booked them. And so there was a moment, and I, I, I don't know, I, I know so many people in all walks of life that have an idea of what they want their lives to be. And at a certain point, you look in the mirror and you go, I'm a certain age and I'm a fairly intelligent person and these are the facts. And how do you want to, what do you want to do from here? So it was actually a very conscious decision to shift. And I had had very similar experiences with the directors that I had worked with in the small showcases that I was doing while you were doing your big Broadway music <laughs> and national tours. But, um, but I also felt like, you know, do, why am I putting myself into these situations? And God, why didn't he do, make this choice or that choice? And um, I also just lucked out. I had some friends who had some money and they put together little um, showcases. And bit by bit, people that I respected and admired came to see this work and encouraged me to keep doing it. It was a very slow uh, process, but a good one. Matthew, I'm always impressed when I go to London with how many young directors there are. And it seems to me, even from my friendship with Nick Heitner, that sort of, there's so many people who get out of school and just start directing, <laughs> which uh, I'm always envious for American directors, actually. And I wondered, was that the same for you? Have you been directing since school? Or? Um, yes, I have, really. Um, I started directing um, 
Uh, well, when I was about 15, actually. <laughs> really young. Um, but uh, I thought I was going to be an actor or a, or a conductor, actually. That's what I thought it was going to be. Um, but I, from the age of 15, I was a member of the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain, mm -hmm. which draws um, young people from the age of 14 to 19 from all around the British Isles to um, uh, a season in the summer in London where they perform... Um, devised work and classics and Shakespeare and musicals as well and um, I'd been acting with them from the age of 14 and 15 and I started whilst I was at university studying music and drama to direct in the summer um, during the vacation for the National Youth Theatre and that meant directing on a, on a very large scale with 40-50 um, people in the cast and I did three productions for them and um, and one of those productions was seen by uh, the artistic director of the Bristol Old Vic Theatre, who then gave me a, uh, a year's contract as a director with him. And I found myself um, becoming a director by, by default, really. I, I don't ever remember deciding that that's what I was going to do. That was simply the work that I got. Um, but the, well, interestingly enough, there are a lot of um, young directors, but there, is, there was for a long time a tradition of young directors coming through um, pub theatres and studio theatres uh, in Britain, which during the 1980s all, uh, uh, many, many of those theatres closed down, lost their funding. And um, there's a, uh, what was very unusual about my work is that because of the National Youth Theatre, I never worked um, in a studio theatre for the first six years of my mm -hmm. career. Everything was on um, large stages, on a, yeah. on a large scale. Uh, which is quite rare, but I think similar actually for Nick Heitner mm -hmm. um, as well, and for Sam Mendes as well. So um, that's something that I know, that's a route, the, 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 the traditional route for young directors is a route that I never took. And in fact, unfortunately, has now become a route which doesn't exist anymore. So it might be that there are less young directors <laughs> from <laughs> yes. now on, unfortunately. That's yeah. unfortunate. Mm. Yeah. Well, actually, this panel is, is, is very young. I was going to yeah. comment that it's sort of encouraging to see that there's people coming up in the ranks here who are going to be directing the future of us. Mm -hmm. Moises, you, your background is not as an actor, right? You came through as a writer and director and producer and impresario. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I started doing theater in Venezuela, um, I worked as an actor for five years oh, in a theater company there. And the more I worked, th I was working with this very brilliant director uh, who had studied with Grotowski and Brooke and all these you know, great theater people. And um, I worked for five years as an actor with him, and at a certain point I knew that I wanted to direct, and there was no room to direct in that company. It was his company. And at the same time, I also wanted to come to New York um, for many different reasons. And um, at that time, at NYU, there were some really interesting things going on. There was a lot of, of the kind of theater that interested me was being taught at NYU at the Experimental Theater Wing. Uh, people like Andre Gregory was teaching there, you know, George Haken, you know, all these people were, were doing really interesting work there. So I went to NYU and I said, all right, you know, I want to direct, so give, if for two years I can come in here and direct, <coughs> you know, that'd be great. So they said, absolutely. So for the next two years, I was just directing all the time, and that was great. I had the space, the, the, the actors, it was, it was fantastic. And there I met a lot of the people that went on to become Tectonic Theatre Project um, that we formed soon after we got out of school. And it's been going on for six years. And um, 
What's interesting is that with Tectonic Theater Project, we were doing work that, that in the downtown art city was well known and people knew it and whatnot. But I think Gross Indecency is the first time that, that it has kind of reached a broader audience. That's very exciting. And will you continue to work with this theater company? Yeah, is yeah, that yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what about talking to a playwright? <laughs> <laughs> Feel home again. <laughs> but have you? Did you start out acting or anything, or was it always your interest? No, although now I see it's the way to get to direct. <laughs> <laughs> Something to consider. No, I, uh, I got out of college. I majored in journalism, and I was just going to be a writer. And so I, I sent an article into the Village Voice, dear editor. Here's an article. They bought it, and I mm -hmm. quit my last job uh, 20 years ago. I just freelance wrote for 20 years, and I just booked jobs. So I would write a documentary. I'd meet someone at a party. He said he was a documentary filmmaker. I said, oh, I, I'm very interested in China. And I would write a <laughs> documentary about China. Then I'd do a horror movie the next month. Then a corporate speech. I just, mm -hmm. I had sort of the toxic waste theory of career management. That just, <laughs> just let it sort of seep with not any control whatsoever. And um, so I, I just booked a lot of different jobs. I would write an article about cabaret and then end up meeting some cabaret performers. And then I had a couple of years where I wrote, I think, every cabaret act in New York. I Is was, that right? I wrote the pattern for about 11 different singers. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I just hope they never saw each other's show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I just did a, a weird mix of jobs. And um, I found theater writing gave me the least money and allowed me the most expression. Uh, mm -hmm. Screenplay writing did the exact opposite. Right. Um, and so over time, I, I've hoped to try to find a way to I, it's one sort of, it's the coffee wine theory, um, you know, just, you, if you mix the two, you do okay. Um, I, I don't know how, it, it's difficult to make a living just playwriting, and, and uh, screenwriting takes care of that and then makes you miserable it in other ways. You, yeah. <laughs> so I found my mix at the moment. Yeah, screenwriting makes you want to write a play. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Or, like, hope for an earthquake, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, no. Well, well. And Jeff, al although you came from a, a corporate life, you started off with a degree in film production. Yeah, the the corporate the corporate thing was a um, a long, interesting side trip for me. I, I always knew that I was going to write, and I guess I always pictured myself directing as well. And um, I guess about ten or twelve years ago, I, a after after college, I, I needed to make some money pretty quickly and no one was going to hire me to write and direct a <laughs> big feature film, which is what I kind of expected coming out of college. So I, uh, I, I got a job in the corporate world and uh, I, I quite liked it and went on to get an MBA from Harvard. Um, <coughs> worked for Coca-Cola and uh, part of American Express for a while. And uh, at a certain point I said, okay, this has been great, but it's time to really do what I planned to do. So I wrote a screenplay, and um, I, I, was, I was very lucky. The first producer I took it to optioned it, and she had just produced The Big Chill. So I, I was in the film business. And for the next 10 years, I, I wrote three other screenplays that all got optioned within the first week or two by Disney and just, you know, big producers. And, uh, and I, I, got, I, wrote, I got hired to write episodes of various TV series. Uh, none of the films was ever made. Very frustrating. Um, I know <laughs> all of us who've done screenwriting know that story. And the TV shows, they appeared on the air saying, written by Jeff Barron, but uh, 
it seemed as if every other word was changed, and it was horrifying, you know, if you care about what you write, to see something represented as yours that is clearly not yours. So that's what brought me to, to the theater. Besides which, I, I see five times more plays than I see movies. I live in New York City. It was like, hello, Jeff, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do, do this. And uh, again, I, I was very lucky. This is my first play. And, uh, and it started in Florida, is that right? It actually started, uh, the first production was at the Berkshire Theater Festival uh -huh. up in, in Massachusetts. Oh, right. And the second production was in Aachen, Germany. In German, Besuch <laughs> by Mr. Green. <laughs> it's actually, Besuch by Mr. Green is actually playing right now in Stuttgart. Um, and uh, uh, and then, then it was in Miami, and we opened last November here in New York. Lonnie, I know that when Jerry Gutierrez gets a new play and he meets a playwright, he has this ritual. He has the weekend method, and you go away for the weekend with Jerry Gutierrez oh. and read your play out loud to him. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if there's wow. some ritual you have when you get a new play, or is there something? How do you approach a new text when you've decided to direct it with the playwright? Well, um, I read it a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I read it. Uh, I read it once and sort of get a first impression of it, and then uh, and and try and go on that as much as possible to sort of maybe even write down certain feelings I have about the play or what I think it's trying to communicate, and uh, then I read it, you know, a, a couple more times. And Jeff and I, when we started uh, collaborating on the on on the play, um, I was just trying to find out what the playwright really wanted to say, and then see if I could help him focus it see if we could uh, work together in a way where I would give him some notes or some thoughts and Jeff was Jeff is a very easy communicator and he would listen he won't do everything you ask him to do because he'll he, he needs it exactly to be he needs to know exactly why you're asking for what you're asking for which was a great challenge to me is to really say well the reason is this 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 and this and then once I could convince Jeff that I I thought he thought my point was correct He'd go off and work on it and fax pages back and forth, and we, we'd work like that. We didn't have like a weekend mm -hmm. retreat ever, though I think of, you know, Florida as being kind of almost like a, a five-week retreat where we really got to really look at the play on its feet in front of an audience and really work on it together. Um, is that answering your question? Yeah, I think so. But also, how I'm curious, how do you decide to direct a play? Oh, wow. That's a it has to really it has to really speak to me i have to feel like i have a kinship with it uh, a relationship to either the, the the characters or the theme um it has it has to affect me in some way a lot of times i'll read a play and know it's a good play and also know it's not a play that's right for me it's not mm -hmm. something that i would necessarily add anything to uh where i would say call michael mayer or you know i mean this is this is not what i do best or it's not something i feel moved by, although I know it's, it's, it's good. Um, I don't know, Wendy, how I choose it. I, I, think, it's, I think it's really just a, a, a feeling that, that I can connect to the material, and it's, it's being useful. Can I be useful to this play? Do and you meet with the playwright to see whether what you think about the play is what the playwright had in mind? Oh, absolutely. So that before you make up your mind whether you're going to direct this play or not, you, you have had a meeting with the playwright. Well, I'll decide before I meet the playwright if I'm interested in directing it, and then I would meet with the playwright to see if what I think of the play is what he thinks of if, the play. Right. And if he, it's not the same thing. You're not on the same line, and, and, and the playwright says, no, no, 
it, it's a sad play, really. It's not a comedy. It's a sad play. Do you then? Uh, I think the best it? thing to do then is to part company. Yeah, and, yeah, and you say, do. oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm, I would never want to impose my feeling about a play on a player. I really, and that's, I guess, why people like to work in the theater. Is it's his vision, as far as I'm concerned. It's what he he wants to say, and can I help him say that? Can I translate that on the stage with behavior and with? moments that support what he wants. Important. Can you help them say that? I think that's a very important part of it. Mm -hmm. It is. I, I, th I think so. I mean, I don't know what the other directors Do feel. Do the playwrights feel that way? Well, the, the process works both ways. When, when someone is suggested as the director or whether you've had their name on a list or whatever it is, it's, it's, it's a little bit like a first date. I mean, you, you're, the playwright is deciding, is this the right director for my piece? And uh, you know, is, is this process going to be okay? Because, uh, you know, you, you're, you're going to be working with that person uh, in an intense way about something that you really, really care about. And will they be protective of the important things to you? Will you get along? Will you be able to argue about it and survive that? And uh, it's, it's how much arguing goes on between playwright and director? <laughs> <laughs> hmm? Well, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, it. Um, the great thing uh, visiting Mr. Green for me was such a great experience. I, I, I hope I have this again. But both between Lonnie and me, and and with uh, the and actors, Eli. with Eli Wallach, um, you know, he, and for me especially being completely new to this. I mean, Eli Wallach could have thrown his weight around. Lonnie could have claimed, you know, 20 more years or 15 more years experience than I have, and they would have been right. But no one did that. Everyone really listened to one another, and w I think everyone was really open to, to good ideas. I think we all felt that no one was suggesting anything just to be right or just to score mm -hmm. points or just, you won the last one, so I have to win this one which was great. I mean, everyone really listened to one another. You know, ultimately, there were, there were really small things that, that Lonnie and I didn't agree on. But I'd say every important thing, we, we ended up at the same place. Sometimes it took, you know, a month <laughs> for one of us to see the other person's point. But ultimately, I think we did on everything important. And there was a basic respect, and I think that that's really the first, the key to all of it, is just respecting each other, you know, that Jeff respects, I respect his writing, and I know that he's, if he's written something, it's not arbitrary, he has a point he's trying to make, and uh, whether I agree whether that's in the right place within the flow of the evening or not is debatable, but I would never question his integrity in terms of wanting to say what he wants to say. Michael, I'm curious, what happens when Arthur Miller wa walks into the room? What happens when it's someone you have so much respect for? Yeah, it's, it's, am it's an amazing feeling. Um, I remember when I first met with him, just to talk to him about my ideas about the play, because they were uh, uh, different than us the usual presentation of the play. Uh, and he was just completely responsive and such a mensch. And so tall. That's <laughs> kind of scary. He's like 18 feet tall. And um, he was really open and very enthusiastic. He's very youthful in that way. So I, was ex I guess my expectations were that my conversations with him about his play would have been much more, you know, of sort of grandfather. Oh, grandfather, tell me what to do. And he's no different from Warren. 
in the sense that he's taller. He's white <laughs> and older. And, and, um, and he was once married to Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Them's the breaks, right? Um, he, uh, but his enthusiasm and his, his real youthful um, excitement about seeing his play done at all. I mean, he came to it as though it was a new play as well. Having him come to the rehearsals set everyone on edge a little bit because it's like, you know, right. oh, the, gr the great man is in the room. But we'd all sit in a circle and he would give his notes. He would act out little parts of it here and there, say some things that were incomprehensible, some things <coughs> that were like gold, just like, you know, just like every other playwright that How I've ever worked How did you get the with. job? I interviewed with him. I had um, mentioned to Todd Hames at the roundabout when I first met with him about four years ago, he says, what plays do you want to do? And I said, I really want to do A View from the Bridge. And as fate would have it, this year they decided to do it with Anthony LaPaglia. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet Arthur. And yeah. I told him that I had this concept that was sort of operatic and huge and simple all at once. Um, and he, he liked it. So he it said, It seems to me that directors come to it very easy. There's no waiting on table or all the things that actors have to go through. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> all come up so easily and so quickly oh, and so young. so many jobs, awful <laughs> jobs, and I did all of that stuff. I was waiting tables and answering telephones at a hotel. Oh, I'm glad to hear surveys that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Struggle for your heart. What about you? How long was your collaboration going on we're inside? Yeah. We're over two years now. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Let's we'll talk about the journey of this play, because it's had a number of readings and developmental... It's been shopped. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, I, uh, first, I avoided writing it for 20 years or so. Uh, uh, I wrote everything but the, the family play. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I finally started, uh, I had a, a nice group of characters with actually no... Uh, momentum or arc or forward motion. Everyone liked the characters. But, uh, uh, and I'd seen a piece uh, that Michael had directed at, at the Atlantic, which I liked very much. And I was pretty sure this was the guy I wanted to have direct the play. And I think I introduced myself to yeah, him that, that night. That night. Uh, it was just one of those wedding night blurs for him. You know? <laughs> um, and then uh, I'm, I was, I'm in a company called Naked Angels, and they, they granted me what's called an Angels in Process which means a workshop in the basement of the West Bank Cafe, which we all mm -hmm. have been drunk mm -hmm. at. And, um, uh, so I had a four-day workshop, and I called Michael, and he was very busy, and I said, uh, and I meant it, I said, Michael, you would, at 50% is better than anyone else at 100%. Mm, Just so show, show up, uh, and we cast it from our Rolodex down to, uh, there's a, a husband and wife in the play, and I said, I have a good idea for the wife. He didn't know who she was, and he said he had a good idea for the husband. I didn't know who that actor was. And they met at the first rehearsal, and we, that was our way of knowing if we would be good collaborators. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're perfect. It was yeah. an arranged marriage. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so we were in the basement for, we had two days rehearsal, and then they were going to read the scripts on our, their laps. And I think on the, the day we were going to do our first audience, I came in with a new second act that I'd written the night before. And I said, sorry, Michael. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I'd heard it for two days in rehearsal, and I... I so all those confrontation scenes really are a good idea to have. Um, <laughs> uh, and I just handed it to Michael, and Michael teched it 
cold, put the whole piece in that day on, while reading it out loud for the first time, directed the actors, and we did it that night in front of an audience. We had two more nights, and uh, everyone was sure that this was going to be the greatest play of all time, and uh, we were basically unproducible off and on for the next two years. Yeah. <laughs> Every time you hear that, that's, that's a warning sign to go back to waiting tables, I think. Uh, yeah. So uh, we got, I got a very lucky break. New York Stage and Film, which is mm -hmm. a company that goes to Vassar for the mm -hmm. summer, was slipped the script, and uh, they decided to give me a production. And that's now two years ago. Mm -hmm. And Michael directed that, and we used the same husband and wife from the mm -hmm. basement. Uh, <laughs> And that really was when the script, I think, came. That was a great. Pl I don't think recall arguing at all. No, we, it was really like it was one of those perfect marriages that you hear about. Um, we ended up even like the second day we were in Poughkeepsie finishing each other's sentences. We were so in sync about the whole thing, and in many cases where one of our work started and the others ended, it, be, it became this blur. We were really like a husband and wife team up there. We were inseparable. <laughs> Every, we would have these private little communications. No one understood what we were we, talking about. We understood about. what we meant way before the actors understood right. what we were talking were about. Michael goes, got it. <laughs> right. and it, and it we just, would just do it. And it was very comfortable. <laughs> I don't think that will happen again too often. I mean, it was a really lovely. And you're up at Vassar. You're in Poughkeepsie. You can go bowling, but then yeah. <laughs> there's working on a play. You really yeah. have a lot of time to focus on your play. Okay. Uh -huh. um, yeah, uh, friendly's ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we went to friendly's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we had we had sort of a blissful uh, three or four weeks of rehearsing with these lovely actors, uh, and and the Poughkeepsie audience was really quite supportive and told us a lot and. And everyone seemed to pitch in. The, the production manager came to me. What's the, the name of the play? Oh, Sideman. Oh, okay. Like that. <laughs> Sideman. So and it's, it's a, moving, isn't it's, it? Yeah, it's moving to the roundabout is, in June. It's a very beautiful play. What Warren won't say is that, um, that it's a very personal play and that the whole process of doing it was, I think, incredibly courageous on his part. And so every step of the way, whether it was those rewrites that we got the day of the first performance in the basement, or whether it was sort of coaching these actors through some incredibly treacherous emotional waters, Warren was right there, you know, just, you know, bearing his breast. And it was that courage, I think, that really inspired everyone on the production to likewise really give of themselves in the most sort of um, selfless and uh, brave way. So I think that was an amazing experience. A lot of these plays have come out of the nonprofit or subsidized theater. And I know in England you've had a great experience with the National Theater and the RC. Is that sort of the wave of the future, do we think? Is this where we are now, that plays really need to be nurtured in in this kind of environment? Is that, I know that's probably more true in London, perhaps? Um, I think so. There seems to be something happening in the West End of London at the moment. I don't know whether it's happening in, on Broadway, where by an awful lot of um, work which normally wouldn't appear in the West End, um, new plays particularly at the moment, is come, uh, a, 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 there's a wave of that work coming into the West End. and. Um, I don't know whether it's tied in with the um, this sort of advance of British cinema. Suddenly, perhaps through cinema, actors and acting are becoming 
more interesting to a wider public. And, uh, but th there is a bit of a vogue in London at the moment for seeing um, serious and provocative work in, the, in a commercial environment. Um, I mean, I wouldn't overstate that, but there is, a, there is a glimmer of that. But generally speaking, I think that um, there's a, inevitably, there's a level of interest that a practitioner has in ideas that, 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 that are personal to writers and um, uh, people who create drama. Um, once you have a hunger, you develop a hunger and a thirst for that kind of um, work and that, that kind of way of thinking and viewing the world, then your hunger goes on and goes beyond what might be an absolutely um, universal or completely populist interest. And so there has to be a lot of theatre that can, um, if you like, produce work by and for enthusiasts. Um, which might not necessarily have a, a mass appeal, and I think that so that's the, the that's why crucially an awful lot of anyone's work who, who cares a lot about um, theatre is going to be in a subsidised setting, because it, it allows you an opportunity to explore things that um, p may turn out to be of uh, mass interest to people, but of course may not, and shouldn't be less valid for that. Was art ever produced in a subsidized setting, or was it...? No, it wasn't, and, and I think that's actually quite important, because mm -hmm. um, the play, se for me, seems to have deeper meaning um, in a commercial setting. It's, mm -hmm. it's quite... Um, it's, it's the most commercial piece of work that I've ever directed uh, by, a, by a long shot, and, um, and I love the fact that it's called art uh, <laughs> because of that. Um, so, the, there's a paradox there, which is alive in the play, actually, because it deals with um, uh, Philistine response to things of value, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a very sort of uh, uh, broad way of putting it, but it also looks into um, areas of sensitivity and tolerance and uh, challenging preconceptions. And I think that in uh, some subsidised theatres, the audience would turn up, in London, the audience would turn up and um, love the white painting, for example, mm -hmm. from the beginning, and um, there would be no story, no journey at all. And in a, in a very commercial environment in, in the West End, certainly, and in Paris, I know it's true to a certain extent here, um, there is more of a journey for the audience to go on um, mm -hmm. with that play. And I think that the, um, the lack of um, preciousness mm -hmm. in the presentation of that play helps the message of the play. I, yeah, I agree with you, actually. You're, you're working with two of my favorite American actors, with Alan Alda and Victor Garber. Was it different working with American cast than an English cast in, any, in your process of directing? <sighs> Uh, There's only seen at home. Where does this go? Yes. Um, it was um, it was kind of different. There, there was there was uh, the directing British actors. <laughs> oh, so glad I asked. This. I can't, it's difficult to remember. It's, yes. it's very difficult to remember, and it's difficult then to talk about it publicly. Um, <laughs> but um, the. British actors do arrive for rehearsals and um, with a newspaper and a cup of coffee, and um, 
there, it takes a long time to, to, to get moving, really. <laughs> and, uh, uh, which is fine. I mean, I must say that, um, uh, that I've loved working with all, <laughs> with all the casts of art. I honestly have, in, in, in different ways. It, and it, actors have their different rhythm. Anyway, the American rhythm of work for the actors I was working with was much more, OK, here we go, rigorous, um, ready to start. And um, in fact, they found me terribly slow <laughs> and um, I think sort of uh, vague for the first few days, which, um, which I, I try to be. I try to make the, the atmosphere feel unpressured. And I think those actors were used to working in a more pressured environment. Alan Alda told me you were the best director he ever worked with. Really? So, yeah, he did. If you were to give anyone advice about how you direct in England and how you direct here, what would you say? I would say be prepared to appear the, as though you know what you're doing here more. So you are an actor. <laughs> yeah. A great performance that I gave for three weeks. Um, I think that's important. It makes people feel more secure, I think. Um, that only in certain areas of working Britain do you need to f appear so conf confident. Um, that's probably the main difference. Very good point. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> Matthew, you, talk, you talked about um, directing a number of different casts because the play artists had a number of different incarnations. And, uh, well, View from the Bridge has had a transfer. Uh, uh, Gross Decency is going to have 8,000 productions in those four minutes. <laughs> you want to talk a little bit about reinventing the, the wheel each time and, and has it a little bit different for you, having created it once and then having to recreate it again? Yeah, I think, well, the first time it was magical, right? Because it was with the company and it was this new work and the way that we were creating the play, it took two years to, to you know, for me to write that play and it was about, you know, I would write, write you know, 50 pages or 30 pages and we would go into a workshop and workshop just that and see that and and then we would have ideas from the stage and then I would go back and write so we did a lot of that and that's we tend to work a lot that way um, so that a lot of the text that's happening on the stage comes from the stage rather than me going off writing it and coming back and just staging it um, which creates for I think different plays I think that a lot of the way we the plays that are produced are a lot you know a writer goes writes a play gives it to a director and there's mm -hmm. this communication that happens that you're talking about but it's mostly a theater that starts from text, right? It's te you have the play, and the play is the first thing that happens. And I think that what we're trying to do is a theater that starts from the stage, that we see what's happening on the stage, how does, what, what happens you know, between the actors and with the material and with the ideas that we have, and we do a lot of improvising, and from that, the text happens. So, you know, that this, I would say 50% of the actors or 60% of the actors that were in the original productions worked in that workshop from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was terrific. That's I mean, they had a sense of ownership in the material and a sense of how we know how this happened. That was great. Um, and then this whole craziness happened. We opened, <laughs> as you know, in a house of 100 people in, in Barrow Street. Uh, my lover went with a truck to get some of the set pieces from Brooklyn. <laughs> And we were at the Mark Taper a month ago, <laughs> and he looked at me. He said, "I think I like it better this way." <laughs> um, and then you know the whole craziness happened. And, and then when I went to San Francisco, that was the second production, and that was great. That was a challenge because it was the first time other actors reading this line. So for me, it was a great, great experience. And then by the time 
day production came about, it was difficult for me. Because I think, I mean, I don't know if you guys have this experience, but you go into a rehearsal room and part of what you're doing is discovering what the play is yeah. about. Yeah. You know? And, but by the time I got to LA, I more or less knew what the play was about. Yeah. Uh, and that was a little bit difficult. And I might do it now in England. And so I'm, I'm, I need to talk to you about <laughs> it. <laughs> When you talk about how this whole craziness happens, I'd love to, if you could tell us, so there you were in this small house on Barrow Street. What happened? I mean, besides it, it's wonderful. Did, Do you really want to hear this? I really want to hear it, yeah. Um, well, we, we opened uh, on February 27th of last year. And uh, at that time, March of last year was one of the, most, of the busiest theatrical months in, in theater history. There were like 300 plays running. And Tectonic Theatre Project had a history of always being reviewed. That was, you know, and, and as I said, we were somewhat well-known within the art and downtown theatre community. But because it was so busy, no, not a single reviewer came. So we run the first week, not a single reviewer comes. We run the second week, not a single reviewer comes. We run the third week. And without a single review, we're selling out. Oh, and we see people waiting, hmm. you know, to buy tickets and not being able to get tickets. And it was kind of terrific. You know, the sense of, oh, something is happening. There was a buzz, and people were coming, and there were lines around the theater, and without a single review. And then our, our press rep wrote the letter that now has become somewhat famous. <laughs> he wrote a letter to all the critics saying, in my 20 years of professional life, I've never written a letter of this nature. I'm begging you to come and see me. <laughs> I didn't know this. <laughs> that was Kevin McInerney, uh, to whom I owe my life. Um, so what happened was that he sent the letter, and then a, a couple of days later, we found out that Ben Bradley was coming to see the show. And of course, I couldn't tell the actor, so the next, sleep I didn't, the next week I didn't sleep all week. And, and the actors kept noticing that I was getting more horrible <laughs> and more anxious, and they kept saying, this is great, everything is going wildly. I couldn't tell. So uh, then the, the, the review came out, and it was a great review, and other people, and then the day the review came out, it was, it was very interesting, because we knew it was ha happening on Wednesday. So on Tuesday night, the whole company went to, to the bottom of the New York Times. You know, it, was, it was really magical. Yeah. And, and the review came out. I read the review, and it's interesting. I think in life, your life changes, and you're not aware of it until later on. Mm -hmm. I think there are a few times where, you can, where something happens in your life, and you see, okay, this is when my life has changed. And I remember that we were all reading the review at the bottom of the New York Times. <laughs> there were like 17 people, everybody with newspaper. And there was a sense of, yes, you know, our lives have changed, and this is going to be something else. And we've been running for a year and a half, three productions now. It's going to be 18 productions this year. There's, you know, so it's, it's just... You know. But when you go back to do a new work, you'll go back to that mm -hmm. company, to the same rehearsal space. Yeah. So it, in a way, it's changed. The basement and then of a church. Maybe it was the yeah. same place. Just as a matter of interest, if you were... If there was this buzz and there were lines around the theater without the review, why it was it so important to you to have it? Mm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody had been talking about it. What a nice okay. silence that is. <laughs> if, if a play succeeds and no one hears it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would have happened will if it, play it wasn't will it play in LA? a favorable review? What would have happened if it wasn't such a wonderfully favorable I really don't know. Because you had these lines, you had the word of mouth, you had everything that one well, hopes think, for. Yeah, I think many times plays have been killed by a bad review when they're beautiful productions. Of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I think that, that you know, we were worried there was a lot, a lot writing. I think it's so frightening. I mean, you know, I mean, we've all, we all experienced this, but, you know, you have a, a good show and then all of a sudden the New York Times likes it and it's 
yeah. your lives change yeah. and you have a good show and the New York Times does not like it and it's changes. over. You know, I mean, it's, it runs its yeah. course, and you don't make a living. And I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it's the audiences most will stop laughing. Yeah. Absolutely, you will have laughs the night before, uh, or huh. conversely, if they're told it's great, uh, they laugh at the curtain. They come in and they think it's funny. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> it's it's, well, it's, better, it's like they're sheep. It's it's, it, they are. They are totally like sheep, and it's 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 and it's the most terrifying thing in the world, I think, to open a play in New York, and it doesn't matter so much anywhere else. Where, where the critics are so important here. But if, if I mean, w we opened Mr. Green and we had two very nice reviews from the other papers and we were kind of doing okay mm -hmm. and we, or not okay, I should say we were iffy. And then the New York Times did a very nice piece on us and it made all the, I mean, the box office literally jumps threefold and keeps it there. Well, what was interesting for us, the way we were keeping reservations for our company was that we had an answering machine in our house. It's mm. <laughs> great. Right. Bragger. So that they... <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to just pause for literally a half a minute so that people can get their questions together drastically. So everybody, stay in your seats. Stay in your seats. Take a deep breath. You can talk amongst yourselves to decide what it is that you'd like to say. The machine blew up. The next day, the smoke coming out. The machine. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. seminars on working in the theater and these are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is on the playwright director and we're going to continue our discussion going into what it is that makes the playwright's words come alive through the hands of the director and how it's done. It's all very simple. <laughs> Wendy, do you want to start? <laughs> Very simple. Well, we were just discussing here how actors in New York use public phones much more than the ones in England during rehearsal, <laughs> which I think is a very salient point. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about casting mm. and decision-making about casting and involving the playwright in casting, and have you ever had an argument with the playwright over casting? Oh, mm -hmm. well, I... I I feel like one of the luckiest directors because I got to work with Eli Wallach this year, which uh, on Jeff's play, and uh, he was a given when I got there, which I'm very grateful for because uh, we certainly couldn't have done any better anywhere. Uh, he's marvelous, and uh, uh, in terms of casting, I, yeah, I mean, this role also, the other role in this play uh, was was a rather personal role for for Jeff in some ways, and so I think that at times we saw him a little bit differently, but. But in general, we didn't. We I don't think we really disagreed almost about anything. We actually sat in a replacement call, and his notes were the same as mine, and we, we're pretty much in sync. Uh, but in terms of in terms of casting with a living playwright, it's it's a lot different. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, when it's um, when it's you're just the director of, of a revival or of a you can do whatever you want, and that's wonderful. You know, mm -hmm. if they're dead, it's the best. <laughs> you guys prefer dead. Right? We do. Dead is best. Dead is best. Dead is best. And you can <laughs> cut and move and paste, and it's yeah. nice. Dead is good. Um, but I, th I think in general, we, you, know, you just collaborate. I, I really believe you'd listen to what um, the playwright wants. I try to give the playwright pretty much what he's looking for, and uh, with the skills available. 
Mm-hmm. Is that answering your question? Yeah. Plus, yeah. A, as you know, Wendy, I mean, one of the great things we were talking about theater versus movies and television, um, the Dramatist Guild contract gives us approval over casting. Right. Which, you know, in, in TV, you know, many times I wrote a show and, and just wasn't allowed on the set. <laughs> you know, they, there's such a difference between the way the writer is treated. So, not in terms of throwing your weight around in the theater, but obviously, I mean, it's something that, that came from you, and you should be part of the discussion at least. And, and, and that's one of the things I really love is that you are. I always find it interesting when an actor emerges and they're at a wonderful time in their life, like Alice and Janney in your play, and she's in my film playing a totally opposite person. And it's, how do you know? I mean, is there a certain sort of buzz or instinct or... I think you fall, I think what you, what happens is that you sort of fall in love with these actors at that moment because they're, they're radiating something, you know? Mm -hmm. Alison walked in, she was shooting um, some film and her hair was this short and white. She didn't even look like Alison. I didn't know. And she just picked up the script and just read with Anthony. And we knew immediately that we had to look no further. And it was something, she'd never done a role like this. Right. It was a complete stretch. She didn't even, in the audition, it wasn't even that she, get, it wasn't one of those auditions where you, I'm going to give it all to you, just stand back and watch this. <laughs> it was just co- really just genuine and conversational. She just read the scene and connected with him. But we knew that it was dead on. And then this astonishing performance came out. And then she's in Primary Colors. Mm-hmm. She's fantastically funny in that. And in your movie. And suddenly she's just this thing. And it wasn't like we thought, oh, Alison Janney's really hot right now. Let's right. get her. It wasn't that kind of thinking at all. <coughs> I think it's, es- I don't know about the other gentlemen, but I think it's essence mostly. I mean, I think that's what I generally find that I cast from. It's not a, per- uh, it's not a personality or height or weight in general for me. It's if there's an essence that seems to be matching that you feel that you can work with a connection. That um, and I think that gives you the v- widest variety of people that you don't have to be. I hate the whole typecasting thing. If we can help it, mm-hmm. to to really just look for someone who's connecting in another way. I think also if you're casting somebody who is hot right now, then you've missed it because right. they're actually you've missed the moment, mm-hmm. and you're not mm-hmm. you're not going to actually get um, their best work. Chances are because they're probably completely distracted by the amount of attention they're getting. So the um, it's a fluke, I think, uh, just to apply the same criteria. And, and if you happen to uh, cast somebody who is just burgeoning, just about to, um, I think perhaps different people in their lives reach a different creative uh, phase as well mm-hmm. and start to find all their aspects of, and skills coalesce in a certain way. And I, I, it's got a lot to do with luck, actually. Yeah. And chemistry, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you put these people together, in a room, it, you just don't know what, what kind of combustion you're going yeah. to find. and I guess that's luck, but it's... Uh, it's, it's a, intuition it, as well. Mm-hmm. But it's very different when you deal with your own company, isn't it? Yeah, because <coughs> you know what, what they can do and you know what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Casting is a very difficult thing. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I, I, have, I always have a really hard time at auditions because I have found that there are actors who can audition fantastically and that's all they can do. Mm-hmm. So you, you, and I think also you're trying to figure out not only 
you know, what the actor can do, but whether you can communicate with them, you know, if there's chemistry, if there's all of that stuff you're talking about. I mean, with Michael Emerson, who plays Oscar Wilde, and who played it in San Francisco and, and Los Angeles, it was very interesting because I cast him in a different role. And then I ended up firing Oscar Wilde, and, and I said to him, this was great, I said to him, you know, I, I really would like to read you for this part. And he said, okay. So he came in, and before he read, he said, all right, I'm going to read for Oscar Wilde, but I want you to know that if you don't think I'm right, I'm perfectly happy doing this other role. Mm -hmm. What a mensch, huh? Yeah. 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 I was like, okay. <laughs> I think it's true that in an audition, uh, people sometimes think that you have something in mind and that's what you're looking for. And it's usually the audition that tells you what you think the character should be like. Right. Someone comes in and you suddenly realize that you're completely wrong. That's what the part should yes. be played like. You learn a lot at yeah. auditions, mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Because you see all these different textures of different actors doing the same lines, and yeah. you learn about you know, what works for the work part and what doesn't. It can be wildly frustrating, too, if you, especially when you get two or three really strong possibilities, and you're like, oh my god, do I go this way or this way? And if I go this way, then that person over there is going to be, you know, it's this house of cards. When, well, I, came, sorry, when I came over to cast for art here, um, I met about 35 actors um, on my first visit, and I found three fantastic casts of art, all <laughs> completely different. They would have been completely different shows. Uh, unrecognizable, different ages, different type of people, different parts of America, different class. Um, and the play would be wonderful in each version, uh, you know, any of those versions, which is incredibly frustrating. Yeah, what's heartbreaking is when you see an actor who's a great actor, and you fall in love with the actor, and you know that he's strong for the part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a killer. How much do you rely on the casting director? You worked with Daniel Swee at hmm. Lincoln Center. Yeah, um, enormously, actually. Um, uh, I mean, he's a very, very creative, sensitive casting director. And um, so that's somebody you want to rely on a lot. At, at worst, it could be someone who provides you with uh, something to jog your memory mm -hmm. and uh, a list of people you might not have thought about. But. Um, it's becoming quite an art, you know. It, it's not unlike other areas of theatre, like lighting design used to be a fairly pragmatic and practical thing, just to make sure people can be seen. And now it is a, um, it's a fine art. And casting is becoming a bit like that. It's, yeah. it's, it's becoming more and more imaginative, more to do about chemistry and putting unexpected people together, which is that's exciting. Why yeah. do you think that is so? Why has it become so much more so? Are, are actors so much more trained and so much more suitable for roles that they're auditioning for? What is the reason for the necessity of a casting agent? Well, I think one of the reasons is that there are so many venues for actors now. I mean, there's so many TV shows and films and independent films and theaters and small theaters and regional theaters that for a director to try to, him or herself, really have his or her pulse on all of the acting pool out there, you wouldn't have time to even read the play that you're going to direct. So you get casting directors like Jim Carnahan, who uh, I've worked with a lot, who's wonderful, he's at the roundabout. He, literally, he will see every single play in New York. And he'll see it again when there are replacements in. He, kno he sees every movie. He knows all the, you know, he knows all the up-and-coming kids out of the schools. He knows you know, who's coming, in, who has a green card, <laughs> who doesn't. <laughs> he knows who's doing something, who, an up-and-coming person in, in a regional theater situation who is looking to come to New York for something. And that's, a, that's an amazing talent. In addition to, you, you know, a great casting director is also incredibly intuitive. 
about the play and reads the, you know, reads the play. It's <laughs> really special, you know. You know, they read the play and they understand what the character should be and have conversations with you and sometimes even with the playwright as well. I think what's great about a great casting director, specifically for theater, is it's about the play. It's not about packaging. Yes. It's not about getting people to into those seats. It's about how will this play work best in collaboration with this director and playwright. So I find them people like you know Daniel Swee or Jim fascinating. They're wonderful people mm -hmm. to show a play to, just mm -hmm. to talk to. Mm -hmm. Just like you know, I like talking to designers as well. Yeah. You know, because there's a sensitivity to the text. There's also though, a, a problem that I, I don't know if other people are feeling though that at certain times of year where everybody goes away pilot and there's season. nobody to put in the plays, <laughs> you know, it's very frustrating. I mean, the, the whole pilot season thing is just if you're casting Horrible. a did, young actor, we did the there aren't any. In the world, we opened in in March, well, <laughs> seven actors, uh, and and everyone said you you won't hold on to your cast. Because uh, you have people working in off off Broadway or off Broadway making oh at least a hundred dollars a week, two hundred dollars yeah. a week, and they get the call for come to L.A. for two weeks for forty thousand dollars in the middle of your run or the day before your critics mm. are coming, and it's just an occupational hazard. Uh, New York has, I think, a very strong pool of actors. I think probably much stronger than actors once they've moved to L.A. Yeah, everybody wants to work in New York. Everybody wants to work in the theater. I, I think the act, the level of work you can do here is much stronger, and you, you really get to show some They say jobs. they want to, but then they but, all go to L.A. Well, but they also have to make a living. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely well, they do go. I have a theory that maybe what the theater should do is we should not take the summer off. We should work in the summer in New York theaters, and our summer should be pilot season. We should have our summer in the spring. I Isn't that a good idea? The worst thing in pilot season is when their agents tell them not to take a job in case they oh, get yeah. a right. pilot. So, uh, they don't even true. have one. We, we lost a couple who were going to do our, our side man because they were going to L.A. to go fishing, you know. For and, a um, and I think that's, that's a, a, bad, a bad bet. I tell aspiring actors, come to New York in February and March because you'll have you'll a much a better yeah. shot. It's very true. Uh, it, it's a contrarian theory, but you'll have a better shot. You'll be seen by good directors, good, good producers, because a lot of the people we, we all come to know it's their, it's their one time to go to the casino in L.A. Well, the <laughs> economics of it are so... I, mean, have, I really do understand the actors. I mean, if they're working for us at one of those theaters and they're making 200 or $300 a week, they can't do that for, for 12 months a year when this opera, when, you know, when the lottery happens. Right. You know, I totally understand that if, if they can make $40,000 in two weeks, they've got to go. At the taper, when mm -hmm. I cast Gross Indecency, we, ca we ended up casting nine people. Three of the actors turned down the play. Mm -hmm. At the taper, which, you know, it's some, some, a place that, that will be seen by other sure. casting directors. Not, not because they had a pilot, but because it was pilot season and they wanted to <coughs> remain free. Mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. Three of the nine. That's amazing. So yeah. if we think we have it bad here, you know, in L.A. it's horrible. Yeah, it's worse. really doing theater in L.A. is... Also, once they get a pilot, if they get a pilot and shoot a pilot, then they are basically out of commission Dead until like you know yeah. whether or not but that Matthew, pilot is... You said something very interesting. You said you could have had three casts out of the auditions that you saw. Today, it is not unusual to have whole cast take over in a play. Why, why would you perhaps not cast two or three casts right at the very beginning? So that you have the opportunity of the actors having work, everybody there, and also you can say to a cast, 
two months, three months, four months, and then you can take whatever you want in Hollywood, come back and reverse it. I think this idea of taking over cast is a very good one. It's, it's healthy. It's healthy for the theater. It's, it's healthy for everybody. And it, uh, it, it, it addresses this, the economic problem of the competition of, of Hollywood and television. Mm. It's certainly it's what we've developed in London with art. Because um, we, we don't call them replacement casts at any level, they're called new productions. And even though it's in the same theatre on the same set, and they have exactly the same rehearsal time as everybody has ever had for the play. Wow. And um, they have their complete new costume design. Yeah. If everything's approached as a, as a new version that I either direct myself or an associate director directs. And we're getting actors that you would put in for a first time cast normally of that caliber. And this is into its, sec in its second year, and uh, halfway through its second year. So maybe, I mean, I don't know how long art would last in on Broadway, but a similar approach is possible. The, the, the biggest obstruction to that is the agents, who are stuck with a different kind of view, that uh, the prestige of being in an opening cast outweighs uh, what they still you know, insist on seeing as a replacement cast. And uh, that's something that has to be overcome. Um, uh, and it's quite a block, really, I must say. Uh, also, this thing that I think needs to be challenged in actors and in their agents particularly, it's obviously a completely different atmosphere in this country than it is in, in Britain, is that no one really becomes an actor or works in theatre to make a lot of money. That is never the primary uh, urge that made people go into it. And anybody uh, who finds himself um, having to say, well, you know, unavoidably for economic reasons, I, I, I have to go to LA and do this job, needs to be challenged, I think, because uh, are they just chasing a, a sort of spurious dream about being on a, on, on, on a big screen? Or is the work they're doing there actually better? And if the work they're doing there is seriously not as good as the work they're being offered on stage, then it's an investment uh, of another kind to work on stage, I think. You know, Michael Emerson, when he, w when he started playing Oscar Wilde, Three months after we moved, <coughs> he's doing the play three months. This is an actor, he's now 43, I think. He, for years, could not get a single role in New York. Mm -hmm. not, he says that he couldn't be a spear carrier at the public. <laughs> and it's true, he just... Three months after he, he does uh, Oscar Wilde, he gets a call from a huge movie, I'm not going to say the name, to be one of the leads in this new big budget the world is going to get destroyed movie next to a big, big actor. <laughs> he gave it away. And you know what happened? Well, it's interesting. He would, like, he was thinking about it and thinking about it, and he would get off the stage and, like, have these panic attacks about what to do. He didn't know what to do. It was all the money in the world, you know, all these things. And he kept reading the script, and he said, this is horrible. This is a piece of garbage. And he turned it down. And he stayed That's with the amazing. show. Mm -hmm. So there are cases when what you're saying it'll, happens. It'll, it'll pay off for him because at some point he'll get uh, a script which is stunning. Absolutely. And, uh, and, 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 and his reticence will pay off in the end. I mean, generally speaking, I think it does pay off. And to appear in a, in a bad piece of work that's going to be seen by millions of people um, right. is a really <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's what he said. Actually. There are still so many questions to ask. And so I have just a few of our, our audience that would like to ask some of these questions. Step up, please. Yes. Ellen Hightower. Um, question to the directors. Uh, how do you approach an original piece as opposed to a revival from a director's standpoint, a revival that you've seen many, many times, and possibly some of the, di the director's style has rubbed off on you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Wow. Um, I think that uh, the, you have an obligation with uh, an old play, um, which is to not only bring the life and originality of that, of that piece to a new audience, but to uh, reinvigorate the writing for an audience who is familiar with that piece already. So you've got a double challenge, which is actually quite an exciting thing to um, think about. Um, I mean, obviously, I've just done it with Hamlet. You've got a, uh, a real task there to make people believe that Hamlet is a new play <laughs> and has got the qualities of a new play. Mm -hmm. That is exciting. I think the two... I haven't, I, I haven't done masses of work with um, living writers, maybe four, four or five productions out of 25, 26. Um, but the two rub off on each other. I think that I view the new writing scripts that I've worked on as classics. Um, and, and I imagine I, I, I work on scripts that I think will have a profundity and a, a relevance over a long period of time. Um, and work on them, give them this, approach them with this, as though they have the status of a, of a major classic. And I work on the classics uh, as though they're new plays, uh, and as though they're, as though they're fresh and surprising, uh, as though they've just been written. Um, I think that it's always nice to have a collaborator. So when the writer's alive, it's nice to have an ally. Mm. Uh, when they're dead, it can be a bit lonely sometimes. Do you use a dramaturg ever on your classic no. plays? No. Hi, my name is Rachel. And my question also for the directors is, how important do you think it is for a director to act or perform, and how much time or to what intensity should they spend in the study or the pursuit of that part of the craft? Well, oh, I'd like to take that one just for a second. Um, I think it's, it, it's a terrific idea for any director to do a little bit of acting. Uh, and I think you can only really understand the process of what an actor goes through by doing it. Um, I also think probably it's not a bad idea for a director to design a little bit and to, to do all the, all the um, tasks involved because if you're, you're the vision that's leading the team, <coughs> hopefully, I think it's um, essential that you have some idea of what the process for all of those disciplines is, are, um, and particularly for actors when you're dealing with text and trying to deal with an emotional life and behavior and all of that. It's, um, I know as an actor, I much more responded to directors who had acted before. And I found that very helpful and supportive. And um, uh, so for my taste, I think it's a good idea to get as much acting training as you can. I think in the theater, it's, it's extremely important for everyone to know as much as they can about every aspect mm -hmm. of the theater, which is one of the reasons why we do these seminars, to take up that, that gap of of having to be specialized in, in directing or in playwriting or in set design mm -hmm. or in sound. Learn as much as you can about every part of it. And then you can tell people what to do and know whether they're doing it correctly. <laughs> yes. Hi, my name is Guy West. I was uh, just wondering what are your next projects? What are you working on next? So the writers, maybe? Is that for everyone? <coughs> everyone okay. Oh. Um, I have, uh, I have a musical that I'm working on, uh, an original musical comedy. Um, I, have, I have an opera that I think uh, might be done this summer up in the Berkshires, and uh, a new play. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> 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 
Well, we're, we're moving our show in about four weeks. Sideman's moving to the roundabout, and I have an evening of monologues going up in two weeks that I uh, go to, I'm in rehearsal on now, and I'm hopelessly behind on a screenplay that I owe to a major studio. So uh, I'm, I'm juggling, uh, as usual. And Explain it a little bit about the monologues. What do you oh, mean? it's an evening of uh, nine monologues that I've written. It's called Stray Cats. And it's being done. There's one nice thing about New York is there are hundreds of these little places. You can put up a showcase for three weeks, and here you here you get great actors. Uh, and since it's only three weeks, people are available. And uh, so I have a, a, it's nine monologues I've written, and we're going to find out if it constitutes an evening. Uh, and it'll be at this theater on the third floor of an office building on 43rd Street, <laughs> all seasons theater company, and we'll take it from there. All right. I'm um, working on the screenplay for Gross Indecency now. And I think the next thing I do is going to be d directing a pre-written play rather than write a new one. So, that's... that's I'm, I'm not doing anything at the moment. I'm, <laughs> I'm having a rest. Uh, um, the next thing I'd do is probably in the autumn, which is probably a, a film of S Sam Shepard's play, Simpatico. Uh, when would that be? When? <coughs> when? Uh, it would be this autumn filming in um, Kentucky and California uh, mm -hmm. for next spring. Okay. Um, I've got Sideman coming from the Weisberger Theater to the Roundabout. And sort of at the same time, and I'm not quite sure how <laughs> I'm going to do this, I'm going to um, tech and preview a new play at the WPA Theater called Stupid Kids. Um, about teenagers in high school, written by a dear friend of mine, John C. Russell, who died about four years ago. It's a really lovely play, and I'm really, really proud that I'm going to have the opportunity to do that. And then um, in the fall, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually doing a, a national tour and 50th anniversary production of uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> that it's the 50th anniversary of Peanuts. So it's really a, a cool thing. So we'll hopefully bring that into New York in the spring. And then I'm going to do The Lion in Winter at the Roundabout Theater in, in the winter uh, with Florence Fishburne, who's going to play do? Henry II. Cool. So that's exciting. What do you do with your free time? Um, <laughs> exactly. That's the Lying. problem. Uh, I've just uh, taken over Musical Theater Works, which is a developmental theater, uh, which um, uh, develops new musicals. So I'm sort of shepherding uh, their uh, four musicals in our theater lab by n emerging writers. And then we have uh, commission projects. David Shire is writing a show for us, among others. And uh, so there are about eight musicals I'm supposed to be supervising. Um, so that's pretty much what I'm doing. And in a year's time, I'm going to be directing the first Broadway revival of Finian's Rainbow. Hi, my name is Mary Strell, and this question is for Wendy Wasserstein. <laughs> and can you speak a bit about the differences between writing for the theater and writing for screen? Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, you know, I just had a really good experience writing for screen. I wrote this movie, The Object of My Affection, that uh, was a screenplay I began writing 10 years ago. I always think of it as if that was the Rasputin of film. They tried to drown it, kill it. <laughs> but, and why it was such a good experience was the collaboration with my director, with Nicholas Heitner. Mm. And that really, I mean, in many ways, we approached that like a play. We worked together on it. I was around when they shot it. So I felt very much sort of 
part of this. It wasn't like I was the 10th writer removed from this experience. And that movie was rehearsed for two weeks. So in many ways, it was closer to my experience of doing the play. But the process of, you know, writing a movie and writing a play, is, it's very different. Also, when you both would know, when you write a movie, you sort of, you have no idea if this thing is ever going to get made. You may well be one out of 12 writers on it. You know, you often, I used to, Chris Durang and I used to joke that there was a Pinto warehouse in the Midwest where the guard watched Heaven's Gate every night and all our unmade movies were sitting <laughs> in the back. There. I'm one of the chief authors at the Pinto Warehouse. <laughs> but I think it very much has to do with how the making of this, how the making of a film is approached. Because what I loved this summer was I thought that the, the business of making a movie is very different than the movie business. Standing around and watching the cinematographer and the hairdresser and the lighting people, I thought, this is fascinating. This is a craft I know very little I about. I to interrupt you to say that this, we have run out of time, and this has been an extraordinary, extraordinary panel of gifted playwrights and directors on here. And wonderful Wendy Wasserstein, who is wonderful, our great playwright. And, and Lincoln said his Thank you both for moderating this seminar, working in the theater, which is coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Thank you. Well, maybe I'll release my hand. Let the horses run. That's right.